And now hear our gospel reading from Luke's gospel, beginning in chapter 2. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, every one to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of a heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. So it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Now, when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen as it was told them. Thus far, the reading of God's word, let us give thanks together. Father in heaven, we praise you and thank you for the things that we just read and heard. We praise you for breaking into history and bringing uh, us, our Savior, uh, giving him to us in the form of a man born as a child, as a babe to Mary and Joseph. And so on this day, we give you our highest thanks and our highest praise. As we reflect on these things, May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our nearest kinsman. Amen. Amen. People of God, being productive in your calling, being productive at your work and getting things done to an extent is an exercise in managing interruptions. How you deal with interruptions will determine how well you are uh, being productive at, at your job, at your calling. There are those people who magically, amazingly, are able to flow through their day uh, doing their work while answering emails and taking phone calls and receiving vis visitors. All the while, they're chipping away at their to-do list, working away at their projects cheerfully and getting things done while managing the interruptions that come along throughout the day. And it all just kind of flows together and they're able to do a good job at that. And if you do that, I, I applaud you and you're, you're amazing uh, to me because there are others like me for whom interruptions are a disaster. Uh, 
The slightest interruption can send the whole day into a tailspin of lost productivity as you get distracted by this thing and then this thing and this other thing and you uh, get so far off course that you forgot where you were left off. And before you know it, the day is over. So, so it can drive us to hate interruptions to the point that we get so frustrated, we say, I've got to get this done and I need complete and total silence. Leave me alone while I finish this thing. The, the ability though to move and flow and cut with the grain to be interruptible, that's, that's an incredible skill to have. To, to see people and your spouse and your children, to see them not as distractions from your job, but as part of your job, as part of your duty, uh, that's an incredible skill and it's a helpful perspective to, to develop. I think of the young mother who grieved over the fact that her new baby was always calling her away from what she thought was her duty. I've got to read the scriptures. I've got to, I've got to pray daily. I've got to read good books. I'm not being faithful. And she realized, no, in fact, my child is my duty. Being faithful to God means means dealing with these interruptions that he is presenting to me. In fact, my child is my duty. I am being faithful to God by taking care of my child. I draw your attention to all this today because the stories we read every year at Christmas are full of interruptions. God breaks into various people's lives in these, in these accounts. He interrupts what they're doing in the middle of doing good things, he interrupts what they're doing and he reroutes their trip. He erases their story, the story they have been writing for themselves, and he writes over the top of it. He, he, he formats their hard drive and he puts new files there, uh, as it were. He has a new story that he wants to tell and, and though it may be awkward or uncomfortable at first to receive this new uh, change of direction, it turns out to be a much better story in the end. In fact, it's far better, the story that God is writing with their lives than the story that they were writing for themselves. So faithfulness for the people in our Christmas narratives, faithfulness for these people, to a great extent, means being interruptible. Faithfulness is being interruptible for Mary and Joseph and the shepherds. Faithfulness means I'm okay with God knocking me off of my course and putting my feet on a different road, heading a different direction from what I thought I was heading down. Luke tells us about the shepherds. He spends so much real estate in his gospel on these shepherds. I always find it so amazing. Shepherds are nothing. Shepherds are not reliable. You can't, their, their testimony would not have been admissible in court. Nobody believes shepherds. Nobody wants shepherds around. They stinky. They, they, they smell like sheep. They, they, they talk to sheep. They're weirdos. They hang out outside of town. Nobody, nobody likes shepherds. They're not reliable. But here, Luke spends so much time telling us about these shepherds who live out in the fields. They keep their flocks by night in the pastures outside the villages and towns. They spend their nights staring up at the darkness of the night sky in the stillness of the late evening with only the light of the moon and the light of the stars. And then, without warning, an angel of the Lord appears to them in the great bright shining light of God's glory. And this angel tells them good news about the Savior and where they might find him. <laughs> now it's great news. Oh, there's a Savior. Israel's going to be saved. The people are going to be delivered. Oh, and we can see him. Oh, and we can, we can meet him too. 
And then suddenly the heavens are torn open and uh, the sound and the appearance of a heavenly army is, is right in front of them with this, this heavenly army praising God and singing glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. So there they are on an average normal night doing what they do every night in the quiet and the stillness of the evening. And they go instantly from this quiet to a heavenly choir singing in front of them. They go from darkness to this amazing brightness. That's, that's quite a change of plans. That's quite an interruption. The angels invade the shepherd's work. The angels disrupt their evening. And before the night is over, the shepherds find themselves in town doing things they didn't intend to do when they started work that evening. They end up in town asking from house to house about a baby born in a manger. And then they find him. And when they find him, they then go around town telling everyone about what they saw. And eventually they return to their fields, praising God for everything that they had witnessed happy for the interruption. Luke begins his section in chapter 2 with a, a different kind of interruption. Caesar Augustus determined that all the empire should be counted, and so he requires everyone to return to their own city so that we only count them once. We want to make sure everybody goes home and stays there until the whole world is counted, the whole empire is counted. You know what? Maybe I don't want to go back to Antioch. Maybe, maybe I don't want to go to Capernaum or uh, Nazareth, or, or Caesarea. Maybe that would mess with my schedule, but you know what? You must go, you must go, you must be counted, you must pay a tax. That was the other good part of this plan, was we, we get everybody, we, we, uh, we get them all counted, and, and you get to pay a tax too. So that's a little cherry on top of the Sunday. Uh, God uses this interruption from Caesar Augustus to bring a special couple down to the city of David, where he's going to fulfill, where God is going to fulfill a promise he made to the prophets, that Bethlehem is going to be the special city. This young couple that, uh, that comes, the special couple whose own plans are being interrupted, they're dealing with a number of disruptions, a number of detours in their lives. Last week, we read Matthew's gospel where we heard about Joseph's plans to put away Mary discreetly. Joseph, if you can just imagine, and, and all of us, you know, we kind of go through these same periods of life, and Joseph, what does he want? He wants to marry his wife, he wants to raise a family, and he wants to do it in that order. He, he wants his wife, and then he wants a family, and he, he just wants to be normal. He just wants, he wants to do what every man and wife does. They want to just want to have a normal story, a normal family. But when it turns out that Mary is expecting a child, can you imagine the grief and pain Joseph must have gone through upon first hearing that? This is not how it's supposed to go. This is not the script. This is not the fairy tale story. This is not what I wanted at all. He's a good man, Matthew tells us. He wants to do the right thing. And he hears Mary say that the Holy Spirit has moved upon her and given her a child. But even if he is able to believe her, even if he accepts what she says, nobody else is going to believe this. I, I, 
people are going to laugh at us. People are going to make fun of us. People are going to make fun of me. Nobody is going to accept this. So Matthew tells us in his gospel that Joseph looks for a very quiet, a very understated way to send Mary away so that, so that he's not shamed, so that she's not shamed, but so that she's taken care of. He wants her to be taken care of. And that's when the angel comes along to Joseph and begins to explain things to him. The angel gives Joseph that solemn duty. He says, no, it's your job, Joseph. You're going to name the child, and you're going to name him, you're going to name him Jesus. And Joseph faithfully obeys. He does exactly what he was supposed to do. But there's that little note, and, and it's one of those little verses that we might just skim over quickly, and we might ignore. But there's that little pang of something missing at the end of that chapter in Matthew, where Matthew writes, he did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son. Joseph was deprived of knowing and enjoying his wife in the normal way that you would expect to know and enjoy your marriage. He was, he was deprived of that until after the birth of Jesus. None of this is how Joseph would have planned things if it were up to him. But God interrupts Joseph's life. He interrupts Joseph's plan. God interrupts Joseph's family to do this amazing, incredible thing to save the world. Now, Mary... She didn't choose the life she was given either. Perhaps she had nothing else on her mind but her upcoming wedding when the angel visited her and the angel interrupted her schedule. She's just wanted to get married. And again, like Joseph, I want to get married and I want to have a family. That's, that's what we want to do. We want to have a good life together. But Mary joyfully accepts the news that the angel brings her. She joyfully concedes her plans to the plan of God. She submits her wants, her desires, to what God wants for her. But it has to sink in first, remember? At the very first, when the angel starts speaking, she's very troubled, and she's very confused. She asks questions like, why, why, why me? You know, what, what, what is going on here? We don't know how Mary worked up the courage to tell Joseph about this. We don't know how Joseph received it at first. Just put yourself in his position. How would you receive this at first? What is Mary thinking while he's figuring out a way to get her out of town? What is Mary thinking about when he goes home that night and he's working on a plan to put her away privately? It, it all works out, of course, according to God's plan. But I guarantee you that before all of this was finished, she wasn't thinking, you know what would be really great? You know, if, if I were writing things, if I could be... If I could be in charge of everything, you know what? I'd really like to be pregnant before my wedding. That's what I want. And then we could take a long trip by the order of Caesar down to see his family. And we'll stay in a crowded house for a couple of months so that when it's time to have my baby, I'll go into labor and I'll have my baby and we'll just put him in a feeding trough. That'll be his cradle. His first cradle will be a trough. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. And then, and then the night that I have my baby, I want these weird shepherd guys to come and hang out around the family and, uh, and talk to us about what has just happened. That's what, I, that's what I really, if I could just write it down, that's what I'd really like to happen. No. No one would write their story that way. Nobody would have wanted this. Nobody, nobody would have said, yeah, this, this is perfect. I got it all laid out. It's easy for us to forget that Mary and Joseph were real people, people just like you and me who wanted to live normal, happy, productive lives. Whatever normal, happy, productive lives meant in the first century when they lived, they just, they just wanted to, 
just do what people do and just, just live their lives. But, but it's important to see that this first Christmas story has a number of detours. It has a number of twists. And perhaps at points, there's heartache and there's trouble and there's concern and there's worry. This is important for us to see because while Christmas is a very happy, very, very joyful time for, for many of us, it's not an entirely joyful time for everybody. In fact, it can be very difficult on many people. I know it's tough on some of you because you've told me. You've told me it's tough on you and it's tough on you for different reasons. And not only can it be difficult for you to make the emotional investment in, in trying to get up to a heightened level of joy so that everybody else uh, knows that you're happy and everybody else knows that you're joyful. Not only can it be an incredible emotional investment for you to, for you to turn on the smile and to, and to not kind of deaden your family's joy or deaden your friend's joy, not only that, but you also feel guilty for not being as joyful as you think you ought to be or as joyful as you think everybody else expects you to be, which makes it worse, right? It makes it worse when then you feel, when you feel guilty. Here's the good news. Child of God, you're in very good company. If you think about the first family and you think about the stresses and the, and the trouble that they go through to get to this point, to give us the Savior, if you, if you think about the worry and the, and the complexity of their situation, if you think about how they came to rejoice in the birth of Jesus, you're in, you're in good company. Because the first Christmas story starts with lots of things not being the way that anybody would have wanted them to be. The first Christmas story has all kinds of things that, that nobody would have asked for. It starts with different people learning to be content with where God puts them, not uh, with a bunch of people pining for whatever God wanted, uh, pining for whatever they think they should get to do, pining for doing something on their own terms, their own way. The first Christmas rejoicing is rejoicing in the fact that God has done something different than what we wanted, and we're so happy about that. God has taken me off my course and I'm not doing what I wanted to be doing, but God has, has moved me over here and I'm so happy that he's done it. I'm so happy that he's given me this set of circumstances. That's the rejoicing in this first Christmas. That's where it, that's where it comes from and that's in the context, that's, that's the context of, of their rejoicing here. They rejoice not because everything is just the way they wanted it. They rejoice not because, oh wow, this is exactly how we planned this. Boy, this went off perfectly. Wow, good job. I love it when a plan comes together, right? I just, I just love how all this just happened. No, that's not why they're rejoicing. They're not rejoicing because they're perfectionists and everything has gone perfectly. No. They're rejoicing because they worship a God who is rewriting their story and rewriting all these stories the way he wants to and rewriting their story in a way that he says is very good. And they rejoice in accepting that. I don't mean to oversimplify things here, but, but Christmas on a larger scale is all about a great interruption. Christmas is an interruption. 
It's about God flipping the script and turning things around the way he wants them to go. The coming of Jesus to save us from our sins is God interrupting the normal way that things are going. And in fact, here's what we need to remember. The normal way that things go is usually bad, right? I mean, do, do, do good things happen on their own or must God intervene and make something good happen? Our inertia is toward death. Our, our, our trajectory is toward darkness and wickedness. The coming of Jesus to save us from our sins is God interrupting the normal way that things are going. If you read the Old Testament genealogies, and I know you have, you see this man lived for this many years and he begat a son and he died. And his son lived for this many years and he had a son and he died. And this man had a son and he died. And he lived and he had a son and he died. And he died 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 and he died. And that's the Old Testament. And then we get to the New Testament, we meet this new man, Jesus who is the son of God. He's the incarnate word and he dies, but that's not the end. He comes back out of the grave and he lives again. That's God interrupting the way things are normally going. That's God breaking death out of a rut and starting something new and giving us new life. And so as much and insofar as we are united to the life of Jesus, we get to have life as well. We live with him. His life is our life. So all the momentum of death and all the momentum of the grave and the inertia of the old world with the coming of Jesus, all that gets thrown in reverse. I had an 82 Oldsmobile one time that I wanted to see how far I could go in drive and how fast I could go in drive and what would happen if I threw it in reverse. Uh, transmission is what happens when you throw it in reverse. The transmission repair is what happens. And that's what, it, that's what God does. Everything is just barreling this way and he throws it into reverse and it all grinds down and it all goes the other way with Jesus. So all the momentum of death gets undone. God in Jesus is rewriting the story of Israel. He is rewriting the story of the world. And we give thanks for that interruption. And thus, as he rewrites the story of the world, he rewrites your story as well. The Apostle Paul could attest to that, right? Uh, uh, Apostle Paul is writing his own story. He's going his own way. He's pursuing his own interest. The Apostle Paul he thinks he's preserving the faith of his fathers and then Jesus interrupts him. And Jesus says, no, actually you're opposing me. You're persecuting me, Paul. And Jesus from that point on rewrites Paul's story and Paul is happy for the disruption of his plans. And there's a good chance that as you evaluate your life at the end of the year and you think about where you are in your story, you're not precisely where you thought you would be. And there are some parts that you would change if you could. And if you had the power to do so, you would change it in an instant. Maybe as you rewrite your story in your head, maybe you would add some different characters. Maybe there are some people you wish were in the story. Maybe, maybe if you had a red, red pen, you could delete some characters and that would be a whole lot of fun too. You could delete this guy, right? You would delete him. Maybe, maybe if you could go back and rewrite your own story this past year, maybe you would have added a few more comedic scenes, maybe taken out some of the more dramatic, hurtful scenes. 
Maybe you would have added a few workout montages you know, throughout, the, throughout the year that weren't there. If, if you're in charge of the script, you wouldn't have written the way it was written this past year, right? You, you wouldn't have written it that way. Okay, fine. I hear you. Join the club. You're in great company. You're in good company. Thank God that you aren't writing your own story. Thank God that he interrupted history in the person of Jesus Christ and that he continues to interrupt our lives to tell the story that he wants to tell. Welcome his interruptions. Contentment means happily accepting what God is doing with you right now and what he wants to say to the world through you right now. Mary joyfully received the gift of Jesus and the Holy Spirit moved upon her and gave her the child Jesus. She joyfully recepted, uh, accepted and received him. Joseph, Joseph joyfully did his duty and was faithful to what God asked him to do. The shepherds receive with joy this interruption. The Lord Jesus comes to you and to me today in worship this Christmas as we are, not as we wish we were, not as we're trying to be, not in that other place that we're coveting, that other life we wish we had, but Emmanuel, God with us, is with us where we are. God with us is with us right now in this moment. And just as he came to Mary and Joseph and the shepherds, so he comes to you right now and he requires worship and he requires obedience from where you are right now in this place because he is writing the story and he's writing all kinds of twists and turns and potholes and mountaintops and deep valleys and he's writing the story and he comes to us and he draws near to us through all of these things to sanctify us child of god your savior has come and he has taken on human flesh and what that means is he has shared in your experience he has shouldered your burdens he hurts with you. He is partaker of your suffering. He really is with us and he will never leave us and he will never forsake us. In this, you and I can truly and deeply rejoice this Christmas that he has interrupted history, that he has interrupted our lives and changed us and transformed us. And that is a very good thing. Let's give thanks. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for interrupting history. We thank you for interrupting our lives and giving us new life in Jesus. Lord, continue to interrupt our lives, as scary as it may be to ask that and to pray that. Lord, continue to interrupt us. Take us away from those things that would destroy us. Keep us from sin. Deliver us from temptation and give us more life. Give us more of the life of our Savior Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen.